So as we, as we get started in uh, today's sermon, I, I kind of need to give a, a recap of last week's uh, sermon for anyone who wasn't here, because today's passage in, in many ways uh, is kind of a confirmation of what we, what we talked about last week. Um, uh, and so, so it really needs to be heard kind of in light of last week's uh, discussion, and uh, in light of what took place immediately before what we're going to read today. Um, so, so for that recap, last week we were in Luke chapter 9, in verse, uh, verses 18 through 27. And what we spent a lot of time talking about was how Jesus did three main things, really, in regard to his identity as Messiah. So he, he affirmed that identity he redefined what that meant. He redefined uh, his identity as Messiah, and then he revealed the implications of it for himself, but, but especially for his, uh, his followers as well. So, so Jesus affirmed his identity. He asked the disciples, who, do, who does everybody say that I am? And, and then eventually asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave that famous uh, declaration, the Christ the Christ of God, the Messiah, the anointed one. Um, and Peter was absolutely correct. He was right in that statement. Uh, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But it was immediately after Peter's statement that Jesus then began to reveal that, yes, he was the Messiah, but it didn't quite fit into the common perception of who the Messiah is, what the Messiah would say, what the Messiah would do. He made that pretty clear when he talked about suffering and being rejected and being killed. Th those were things not associated with the Messiah at that point. And, and, and so just as, his, just as his disciples were, were, were beginning to process that new information about Jesus' identity, he went on to reveal the implications of it for them. He said they too would be called to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, follow him. So not only would their understanding of who Jesus is have to undergo a radical shift, but their understanding of their own purpose and their own calling had to undergo a radical shift as well. His words, Jesus' words, surely left their heads spinning. I mean, that is a lot of new information all at once. For the, for the apostles. Perhaps they wondered what had just happened. Perhaps it caused them even to question their allegiance to Jesus or question his claim to be the Messiah. I mean, we've already seen earlier in Luke's gospel that John the Baptist kind of gave voice to his questions regarding Jesus' identity, especially when, when uh, uh, his own expectations were going unmet. So I think there's some good reason to wonder if the disciples found themselves in a similar spot after what Jesus had just declared to them. And so that's where we, we pick it up here uh, this morning in verse 28 of chapter 9. So if there was any wavering or, or any questioning on the part of the disciples, I think the next few scenes that we're going to see this morning would provide confirmation to, to reassure them of Jesus' identity and his purposes. 
And so as, as we pick up the narrative in verse 28, it's been eight days since Jesus had made those statements that we talked about last week. So just as we talked about that a week ago, the, the apostles here have had about a week to process that as well. Chew on that for a bit. So, so look with me here at verse 28, Luke chapter 9. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they encountered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, in many ways, this scene is the climax of the first section of Luke's gospel. Uh, Most people, if they were to break Luke's gospel up into two parts, would either do so here at the Transfiguration or just a little bit farther down in verse 51, where it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So so either way, however a person might divide up Luke's gospel, either way, today's passage is going to kind of serve as a transition. It's going to affirm all that had come before, all that Luke had already written about, but it's also going to look ahead and foretell what is yet to come in the ministry of Jesus. So the scene began with Jesus' appearance and and his clothing becoming dazzling white. You know, in a sense, his his glory, which to a degree had been previously concealed, is shown for what it is. Uh, The curtain's kind of pulled back, so to speak. Now, Now, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus during this Advent season, we recognize that there is some sort, some degree of glory concealing that, that took place when the Son of God became human. I think we recognize that. You go back into the Old Testament, Exodus 33, Moses wanted to see God's face but wasn't able to do so because he would die. But now all of a sudden you get to the New Testament with the birth of Jesus and and Mary and Joseph and, and shepherds and wise men and, and everyone else who looked at Jesus could do so and live. And so we recognize that, uh, you know, that even though Jesus is the glory of God in every way, that that glory, at least physically, is concealed to a degree as he walked the earth. Well, we get here to the transfiguration, and, and man, it, it's... 
the concealment decreases. I'm sure this wasn't his full glory, but it was much more of a physical representation than would be normal. And then you add to that whole event, Moses and Elijah appear and start talking with Jesus. Now, now people give, there's different, there's different thoughts on why Moses, why Elijah, why they were the two that appeared here. I would say that, that Moses and Elijah, they are the two figures in the Old Testament that, that are the main representatives for the law and the prophets. Moses being the, the giver of the law and Elijah being considered the greatest of, of the prophets. And, and as, we get, you know, as we get this story, Luke even tells us the topic of their conversation that they're talking about Jesus' departure, or, or, or literally in the text, the Greek word, his exodus, his, his, his uh, upcoming death and resurrection and ascension. And there, there, there's this powerful picture here where we have Jesus' incredible, blinding glory being shown all around, and, and it's being compared to his upcoming death and, and resurrection and ascension. I mean, that, that, that is, a, is a crazy picture to think about. And then now it, it's being discussed with Jesus and then Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the law and the prophets. What, what, what a great picture of the relationship between the old and the new covenants, between the old and the new testament. You know, it, it's, it's Matthew who quotes Jesus as saying that he had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And I, I think we get a picture of that right here, that Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus and, you know, talking about his upcoming departure, right? I think probably talking about how those things are fitting together, the old and the new covenant. Man, to, to, to have been that proverbial fly on the wall for that conversation, I think that would have been such an enlightening thing. Or to have been Peter and John and James, who were there, who got to see it. And, and there's, I kind of laugh a little bit when I, when I try to put myself there, because Luke tells us that they're heavy with sleep. And, and I mean, can you imagine being, being asleep, and you wake up, and this is what you see? Have we ever had those instances where we wake up, and, and we're not really sure if we're conscious or not? And it's like, am I, did I wake up from a dream, and I'm still dreaming, or am I, I mean... That had to have been kind of disorienting, but finally they, they recognize that they're not dreaming, that they are fully awake once again. And then that's where Peter speaks up and, and you know, as he often does, suggests something on behalf of the group and says, well, we should, we should set up shelters for you here, presumably to, to try to prolong this event that is taking place. Now, now, something we're going to see all throughout the text today, over and over and over again, we're going to see the apostles kind of show that they're a couple steps behind. They're not quite keeping up with what Jesus is revealing to them. They, they, they struggle with these new revelations from Jesus. Um, uh, no fewer than five times today, we're going to see, uh, see them shown in less than flattering light. Um, and I think, I think that can help us understand just how monumental this shift is that Jesus is talking about. This shift where he says, yes, I'm the Messiah, but that means I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And 
you know, the fact that the disciples are struggling to keep pace, I think, reveals to us how monumental this is, what's taking place here. So, as the story continues, the, the apostles wake up, they, they kind of misinterpret the situation, and then this cloud over, <laughs> overshadows them, and the voice of the Father comes and speaks and says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And, and I think there's two main things to take away from that. I, I think first, that takes us right back to Jesus' baptism, because that was the last time a voice from heaven spoke over Jesus and, and confirmed his identity. So I think we're supposed to go back to that. And, and remember, I think the apostles uh, have just had their world rocked by learning that the person that who they thought the, was the Messiah is going to suffer and die, and that surely led to lots of questions questions about Jesus' identity, and then here God, the Father's voice, comes and says, this is my son, confirms maybe what they were questioning a little bit in their hearts and minds, that yes, this is my son. You know, if, if, if Peter and John and James were wavering at all after the conversation with Jesus that previous week, I think this would have answered those questions and answered those doubts, that voice confirming that this is God's son. You know, is Jesus really the Messiah? If he's going to suffer and die, God's voice from that cloud affirms and says, yes, yes, this is my son, my chosen one. The other, other thing I think we should take away from, from that statement is the directions given to those three, the directions to listen to Jesus now, as I said, this, this scene presents a, a major shift in, in Jesus' ministry and in especially Luke's gospel. Prior to all of this, prior to the transfiguration, um, the events of, of Jesus' ministry that Luke has recorded for us, Jesus has performed, by my count, going back through 16 miracles. 16, and I imagine he performed more than that, but, but 16 are recorded for us in Luke's gospel. So, so in chapters 1 through 9, and, and really it's 3 through 9, if you start with the public ministry of Jesus, 16 miracles are performed. From here up until Jesus' ar arrest and crucifixion, there's going to be six more. So over the course of seven chapters, 16 miracles. Over the course of the next 14 chapters, six. So if it seems like so far, every week, we've been talking about miracles that Jesus has been doing, we have been. <laughs> Luke has been recording them for us over and over and over again. But things are going to change a bit moving forward. The miracles are going to greatly decrease, and the teaching of Jesus is going to, to increase to a great degree. Now, now, if you're a visual kind of person, and you've got a Bible with uh, the words of Jesus in red letters, it, it's so evident. It's so evident. I mean, if you look through the first, first nine chapters, there's some sections where Jesus has some extended teaching. We see that in, in the end of chapter six. You see a little bit of it in chapter eight, but it's, it's a lot of, of stories about miracles. But then you get to chapter 10. It's primarily red letters. Chapter 11, 
primarily red letters. Chapter 12, red letters. Chapter 13, red letters. 14, red letters. 15, basically every letter is red. Chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18. It's just over and over Jesus speaking, teaching of Jesus. So, so to this point in Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel, the focus has been on powerful miracles. But from this point forward, it's about Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. So when, when the voice from the cloud says, listen to him, I think that's, that ought to be telling us, hey, there's some teaching coming up. Listen to it. Not that we shouldn't be listening before, not that there wasn't teaching before, but it's going to ramp up. Be sure to listen to that. So, so this whole scene of the transfiguration uh, is a powerful confirmation for Peter and John and James regarding Jesus' identity as the Messiah. And, and, and it was so powerful, that, uh, so powerful for Peter that he, uh, he reminisced about it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He's referencing this event. I think it's so powerful for John that he referenced it at the beginning of his gospel when John says, we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father. I think he's got this in mind. And, you know, James, unfortunately, died at the hand of Herod about 10 years after Jesus uh, left the earth. And so we don't have really letters from James, but, but I have, I'm sure the transfiguration had a, had a great impact upon his life as well. But what about the other nine? <laughs> What about the apostles who weren't up on the mountain, who were down at the bottom of the mountain for, for this? You know, uh, they get their own confirmation. Look at, look at what happens after the transfiguration. Uh, verse 37 says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So Jesus is confronted by someone who's demon-possessed. That, that's happened before, but it happens again. And, and, and again, the apostles aren't shown in a very good light. They, they were unable, the nine that were down there, were unable to cast out this demon, even though earlier in chapter 9, Jesus had given them his power and given him, given them his authority, and he sent them out, and they did cast out demons. Well, now all of a sudden, they're, they're having trouble. Makes me wonder what, what changed. I mean, this is the same chapter. What, what happened? And, and, and I, you know, I'm only speculating, but, but I wonder if their recent uncertainty regarding Jesus' identity in light of what Jesus has now shared with them, I wonder if, if that new information about suffering and dying affected their faith just a bit. And, and, and if so, perhaps it hindered that ability to, to uh, work in the power of, of Jesus to cast out this demon. I, again, Matthew quotes Jesus 
as referencing the disciples' lack of faith when, when they asked him why they couldn't drive it out. So it just kind of makes me wonder, you know, were they, were they just not quite as sure as they were before this new information from, from Jesus had been given? But, but just like Peter and John and James were given confirmation the day before up on the top of the mountain, now all the apostles receive confirmation again of Jesus' identity because he heals the boy. He casts out the demon. You know, he, he shows his authority still over, over uh, the unclean spirit. And not just the apostles, but, but all that were there. They were all astonished by the majesty of God. So all present that day would have recognized the power and the glory of God in Jesus. So, so any question that the apostles might have had regarding Jesus' identity, is he, is he really the Messiah if he's going to die? Jesus confirmed it here at the top and the bottom of the mountain. He, he affirmed, yes, yes, I, I, I am that Messiah. But in confirming his identity, he also confirmed that new information that he spoke about being the Messiah. Look at uh, halfway through verse 43. It says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So we said last week, Jesus, he didn't just reveal that he was the Messiah, he also revealed what kind of Messiah he was. And here again, same thing. Jesus confirmed, yes, he is the Messiah, but he also confirmed what kind of Messiah he is. He, he was a Messiah who would humbly and, and sacrificially give his life. So, so in the midst of, of three apostles uh, basking in the glory of God at the top of the mountain and, and all 12 apostles basking in the glory of God at the bottom of the mountain, he again reminded them that he and his kingdom was about more than, than public displays of power and glory. There's something different there. He would be the Messiah who would be delivered over to the hands of those who sought to kill him. And because of his great love for sinners, he, he would submit himself to this humiliation, to this suffering, to this death, in order to bring about true glory and true life. And, you know, in, in case the apostles wonder if they misheard or misunderstood Jesus from nine days ago, he, he confirmed it here. Yes, I'm still that kind of Messiah. And we're told that they still didn't understand what he was saying. Again, they're a couple steps behind, right? Not quite caught up. They don't understand it. They're afraid to ask him about what he was saying. But because Jesus said it again, they can't deny what he was saying. They may not understand it yet. They don't understand it yet. But they can't deny it. You know, well, maybe Jesus was having an off day nine days ago and wasn't, you know, but to he said it twice now, in a week and a half, so there's no denying what Jesus is saying about himself. So just as Jesus confirmed his identity, and just as he confirmed his humility and his sacrifice, he, he goes on and he confirms the calling that he had given to the apostles that we talked about last week. Again, we, we talked last week about how 
how power often can consume Jesus' church. It, it can consume the church as a whole, and, and it can also consume individual believers. Uh, you know, that, that uh, struggle for glory, as defined by the world, can derail even the most committed followers of Jesus. And we're going to see that theme continue. We're going to see the apostles again failing to grasp the nature of Jesus' character and the nature of Jesus' kingdom. And, and so as a, as a very clear display of their lack of understanding, they, they begin to argue about honor and glory. Look at what happens here. Uh, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So they obviously fully understand everything Jesus has been talking about, right? <laughs> They're arguing about who's the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So just like Jesus turned people's understanding of the Messiah upside down, he turned their understanding of his kingdom and, and of greatness in his kingdom upside down. Jesus did not seek to elevate himself through displays of power. That wasn't who he was. And Jesus' followers, as we see, should not do that either. We should not seek to elevate ourselves through displays of power. And, and to drive that point home, Jesus takes a child, pulls that child close to himself, and, and says that, that, that those who are truly great would, would welcome or, or, or serve or receive this, this child in his name. And when you think about children, especially at that time, child was someone in that society who had no power, had no influence. There was nothing they could do to gain power either. And there was nothing they could do to repay any kindness or humility shown to them by someone else. I mean, uh, really, the, the, it meant that there was no culturally advantageous reason for any adult to ever humbly serve a child. There was just no reason for it, according to the culture. But Jesus says, no, those who, those who truly know him and those whom he truly knows are the ones who, who feed the hungry, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned. So followers of that Messiah humbly serve, no matter how low the person is, according to the world, according to that culture. And that point is driven home by pulling that child to himself and says, this is what it means to be great in my kingdom, humbly serving the one who cannot repay you anything, who culture says is not worth it, should not be served. And what we're going to see, Jesus, you know, I said there's a lot of teaching coming up, a lot of words of Jesus. He's going to drive this point home again and again and again in, in the weeks that come as we go through these teachings. Parable of the Good Samaritan. Parable of the Prodigal Son. 
parable of the rich man and Lazarus, just to name a few. We're going to see it over and over again. Those, all those other teachings are just additional pictures of what it looks like to be great in God's kingdom. And, and <clears throat> I mean, we, we, we've, we've heard that before. We've heard the principle before. But the question is, are, are, do we truly live that out? Do we live that out in our lives? Or are we welcoming children in Jesus' name? Are we welcoming those who cannot offer anything in return? Or are we, like the apostles, are we arguing among ourselves about who's the greatest? Uh, man, the kingdom of the world says you elevate yourself. You, you do what you can to elevate yourself. Everything is built around that concept. But the true king says, you know, you elevate someone else, especially those cast out by the world. Jesus, the Messiah, lived his life that way. That, that, that was who he was, who he is still. And that's what his followers are called to do also. <clears throat> so we see here that, that followers of the true king, they don't seek to elevate themselves through power. That, that's, that's very clear. In the final short section we're going to look at, we also see that followers of Jesus don't seek to elevate themselves through excluding others. So if you look with me at verse 49, one more time, an apostle comes off not looking so good. Uh, 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So, so John, and again, I mean, John was just up on the mountain with Jesus, saw this incredible uh, picture, the transfiguration. He saw what took place at the bottom of the mountain, which is kind of ironic, because the apostles couldn't cast out the demon. Here, he sees somebody who's not in their inner circle casting out a demon in Jesus' name, with Jesus' power, and says, well, we gotta stop him, right? I mean, he's not one of us. I mean, <laughs> just one more time, an apostle has shown not looking so good, and Jesus has to correct their thinking and their understanding. And, and it's easy for me to look at that and shake my head and be like, come on, John, I mean, how dense can we be here? But Man, uh, how often do followers of Jesus today do that same kind of thing? I mean, how often do, do we in our church or our own tradition or just kind of assume that we ought to be elevated above others in other churches and other traditions because we really have it figured out a little bit more than everybody else does? I mean, uh, in, in, it, in asking that question, I'm not... Uh, I'm not trying to say that doctrine doesn't matter. I, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we ought to cast doctrine aside, but, but in our striving to be doctrinally sound, we can also become hostile and, and condescending to those who land somewhere a little bit different than we do. I mean, and it can lead to trying to exclude other groups or other individuals from the true body of Christ. And, and I think instead, we ought to really, it's just two verses, it's such a short picture, but it's so powerful. I think we ought to instead recognize 
when ministry is taking place in the name of Jesus and to the glory of Jesus and support our brothers and sisters in Christ in that ministry. And, and you know, I, I think that, that is the attitude we should have to, you know, to uh, other branches, as we talked in Sunday school this morning, other branches of the body of Christ um, around us. But, but I think it affects that affects our relationship with believers in our own church body as well. We kind of talked about this this morning because if, if I can look down the road or across town to another church and say, well, if I, and I probably would never say this, but if I start thinking, well, I wonder if they're really a Christian because they do something a little bit differently than we do here at EBC, or they, they believe a doctrine a little different than we do here, it's such a short jump to go from there to look around within the room and say, well, somebody in front of me or next to me, they don't quite hold the same doctrinal belief I do, and so are they really a true believer? Are they in the wrong? It's such, a, it's such a short jump to be hostile or condescending within ourselves as well. Now, there is, there is room for healthy debate and, and discussion about those kinds of things between church traditions and within church traditions as well. And I, I, I personally, I enjoy those kind of debates. I, uh, and, and debate can have kind of a harsh uh, overtone to it. Discussion's a better word. I enjoy those discussions where we plumb the depths of scripture and wrestle with what's there. But those discussions have to be grounded in the humble sacrifice and service of our Savior. They have to be grounded there. Because as, as Jesus says, the one who's not against us is for us. And it's not just a lesson for John in, in that verse. That's a lesson for us too. Jesus was not about excluding people from his kingdom so that he could elevate himself. Uh, and I think that that's, I, I know that's the calling on us as well. To not seek to exclude in order to elevate our own status. And I think, you know, some practical ways to, to live that out. I think one great way is, is to make sure we've got relationships with believers from other church traditions. And, and we live in a small town, so we're probably rubbing shoulders with people from other traditions quite often. So, so that may be a pretty natural thing. I hope it is. There's some great opportunity in there to, to have those discussions and to converse together and learn from one another regarding our mutual love for Jesus how we seek to live as citizens of that kingdom here on earth, here and now. I think there's some great discussions that can be had there. So that's a practical way we can do it. And I think another great thing to do is to pray for other local churches. Especially if we're driving by a church and you see it, you know, you see their building or their sign, you know, or you see they've got an event going on, you read about it in the paper or something, to, just, to pray for them. And they're not against us. They're, they're for us to, to pray that, that God's spirit would be working powerfully. The gospel would be proclaimed clearly through their efforts. I think that's a great way for us to, to strive for that unity. You know, we read Ephesians 4, the beginning of the service. I think that's a great practical thing we can do. Be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ in our local communities. You know, to, to kind of sum this all up this morning, the, as Jesus presents it, there is such a thing as greatness in the kingdom of God. 
that that is a thing. Uh, we've seen it today. We're going to see it many more times as Jesus goes on to teach in Luke's gospel. But that greatness is not achieved like it is in the world around us. It's very different. In, in the kingdom of God, greatness is given to those who humble themselves. They don't seek to elevate themselves through exerting power over others. They seek to humbly empower others. That, that's the kingdom of God. Uh, they don't seek to elevate themselves through excluding others. They, they seek to humbly welcome others into the kingdom. I mean, that, that is greatness in God's kingdom. And, and the great thing about all of this and, and we kind of got into this in, in uh, Sunday school this morning. The, the great thing about all this is that as we live that out in our relationships, uh, our families, uh, our, our churches, the, the kingdom of God is going to be seen breaking into the world. We're going to see it more and more. I, I think some of what we long for in, in heaven can be had right here and right now. Now, what we're going to experience in heaven, we can't fully experience here and now. This world is still broken and fallen. Until that is all made right, we can't have that. But glimpses and pictures and tastes of that, we definitely can have here and now. Otherwise, why would we pray about God's kingdom coming? And we'll get to that in chapter 11, Jesus teaching on prayer. I think we can have glimpses of that, but it doesn't come unless we we cease trying to be great in the eyes of the world and instead humble ourselves following this example set by the true Messiah as he confirmed for us this morning. But oh, how great it is to have pictures. I mean, what I'm looking at right now is a picture of that. Individuals, unique individuals coming together and seeking to unite as we, as we sing, as we pray, as we as we proclaim the gospel, I mean, that, that, that is a picture of the kingdom of God. It truly is a wonderful thing and a blessing. I mean, that, uh, man, I, I, hope, I, hope we can, I hope we view church that way. I mean, I hope we view the church body in that way, this picture of the kingdom of God being lived out, especially as we are humbling ourselves and, and serving those around us. Would you stand with me? I, I think we need to. I think we need to give praise to God this morning for the kind of Messiah that He is, and and praise Him for the implications of that as well, as we see it uh, lived out in our lives. Father, we as we come to you uh, uh, again, we we stop and we we thank you for being our Messiah, uh, and, and we recognize that the. Every one of us is still learning what that means and, and, and the implications of that, and, 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 and we're, we're still growing in our understanding of your character. And so we, we, we pray that through your work within us that that would continue, that we'd be growing uh, in our knowledge, but also in our, in, our, uh, in our following after you. And God, I pray for us here as a church body. I, I, Thank you for the, the picture of your kingdom that this is. I pray that you would continually guide us in that, uh, that we would uh, see your example and, and live that out here with this church body, but, but even out beyond this as well. 
we thank you. I just want to pray right now for the other churches in, in Eureka, in Roanoke, Washington, Goodfield, uh, all around us, God. We, we know that the gospel is being proclaimed more than just in this building. And so we praise you for that. I pray that, that we would recognize our brothers and sisters in Christ. We would support one another, humbly serve one another. God, that we would teach one another. We give you praise, God. We give you praise that you are bigger than our own individual expression of discipleship, that you're bigger than our own church tradition here in this church of discipleship, but that, 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 that you are great and that you are mighty. As we continue singing songs of Christmas, God, what a picture right there of you humbling yourself, becoming human. From the first breath that you took, we get, we get an example of this, and we thank you for it, and we praise you for it. It's your name, in your name we pray. Amen.